Welcome to Reasoning Through the Bible. My name's Glenn. I'm here with Steve. Today we're going to do something a little bit different than our normal study. I hope if you've been with us for a while, you realize that what we really consider our most valuable thing that we do is a through the Bible, chapter by chapter study. And if you're only listening to these question and answer sessions like we're going to do today, then you're really kind of missing out. But for our regular listeners, today is a time where we're going to take a few minutes and just answer some questions. Yeah, We've had questions submitted through our email address, which you can find at info at reasoningthroughthebible.com. Yeah. And these are ones that have been submitted there or to us personally. Mm-hmm. And so what we wanted to do is just take time and answer, answer a few questions and we'll, we'll see how this goes. But uh, these came to us in no particular order, and they cover many different topics, so let's just see what happens. One of the questions that I've been gotten, Steve, I had this many times, actually, mm-hmm. in, in recent years. Mm-hmm. Hasn't the Bible been translated so many times that we can't trust it? That yeah. seems to be a common question that, that I get. Yeah. And so one answer for that is that it, it's a misconception simply because a lot of people don't know how the Bible was translated, and they don't, they don't know the languages. Right. So I wanted to take just a minute to explain the process for translation. First of all, it's really no different translating the Bible than it would be any other modern language. Mm-hmm. Just like if we were translating from English to French or, or French to German or, right. or I- any one language to the other, there's people that know both of them. Correct. And in fact, I have a friend of mine, that's his job as a professional translator, and, and mm-hmm. that's what he does for a living. Mm-hmm. And so there are people that, that do this. They study it for quite a long time, and, and that's their jobs. So that's one, is it's really no different than translating from any other language. It's also one of the major misconceptions that when I answer this, I, I kind of get some surprise. It is not the case that the Bible we have now yeah. started out in language number one mm-hmm. and was then translated to language number two mm-hmm. that was then translated into language number three right. and number three into number four and on and on. Right. It, so it is not the case, not the case, that the Bible we have today was translated through a series of languages. Right. The Bibles that we have today whether it's in English or any other modern language, was translated from one language into English or one language into whatever language we have today. They go back to original manuscripts. They go back to the original languages. Yeah. And so the original languages, for the most part, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew Mm -hmm. and the New Testament was written in Greek. There are a few passages in the Old Testament. There's a a few passages in Daniel, for example, Mm -hmm. that was in Aramaic, which is one of the other ancient languages. Mm -hmm. But 95 plus 99% of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and the New Testament was written in Greek, what was called then Koine or Common Greek. Mm -hmm. And so translating the Bible is, is just a matter of translating from Hebrew into English, or from Greek into English. Mm-hmm. And 
One of the things that you have when you look at the translations, if you pick up the various English translations, there's the New American Standard, there's the English Standard Version, there's, of course, the Old King James, and there's a New King James, there's right. the New International Version, and there's on and on. So there are a few distinctions and differences. They they don't all read exactly the same. Correct. But those distinctions are not because of some issue with knowing what the words mean in, right. the, in the original language compared to the English. Right. That's not why those differences are there. First of all, there's if you just look at the meaning in the sentences in the various English translations, they're mm-hmm. for the most part the same. Yep. The reason why some of the English versions read differently are the translators have a different philosophy. For example, Paul, in many of his letters, had what we would call in English long run-on sentences. Mm-hmm. And you can tell in some of the translations, they he just goes and goes and goes. It's like a stream of thought. <laughs> right. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. But the, when you're writing in English, you have to make a decision. Right. Do I translate it in English in a run-on sentence, mm-hmm. which is not technically grammatically correct in English? Correct. Or do I correct the grammar and write it in the way the English would say? Yeah. And so that's one distinction. There's another decision that the translators have to make, which is, especially in the New Testament Greek, mm-hmm. Word order in English makes a big difference. If you say John took Mary to the store, mm-hmm. it's very different if I say Mary took John to the store. The word order matters. But in ancient Greek, it, it's not the case. Word order is there just for emphasis. Yeah. And you emphasize things, whether you're saying it's John took Mary to the store. Mm-hmm. Or are you trying to say, John took Mary to the store? Yeah. See, I can say that verbally with an emphasis on my voice, but how do you write that down? And so that's the decisions that the translators make. To me, the big misunderstanding seems to be that it's a common misconception that the translators started in one language, took it to a second language, then a third language, and a fourth, and a fifth, and a sixth, and a seventh, and finally to English. And that's just not the case. Yeah. And then in the 1940s, the Dead Sea, what's referred to as the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And these were copies of the Hebrew Bible that were used by the Essene community. And people are actually still, scholars are still actually going through them. They're still finding them because they were rolled up and Some of them had crumbled in different places. But what they have been able to do and piece through, they've seen that these copies of the what's the Hebrew Bible or what we would refer to as the Old Testament passages are the same as the other original manuscripts that have been from other places. And so it's a validation that the original script and the original language hasn't changed through the years. There might here and there be a few punctuation or things like that 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 were done, but those things are excluded. And in fact, we actually have thousands upon thousands. I want to say something like 7,000 original manuscripts. The Greek manuscripts in the New Testament, it's it's between 5,500 and 6,000, depending on how you count them. Yeah. So, and we, so we actually have more original manuscripts 
than any other ancient documents uh, yeah, that em- there are. Embarrassment right? of riches is how the 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 document people correct. Describe. Now I will say this, and this is my understanding that might. So the second question is then why do we have so many different versions? Because you just named off about five of them right there. My understanding is is that for copyright purposes. There has to be at least a 10% change in a version. So many times a a particular idiom or a particular picture, word picture, is described differently. And I say I use the word differently, not in that it means it's different. It's just a different aspect of it or a different way to put the same meaning. And so through that, we have different versions of the same Bible, but they're all still going back and coming back to the original well, transcript. I've, 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 right? I've got an example of what you just said. When you use the word idiom, here's an example of what the translator's decisions they'd right. have to make. When I was a kid, my mother used to use the phrase, you're driving me up the wall. Yeah. Now, I don't know why she'd think that, because I was a good kid. <laughs> but my mother used to tell me that. You're driving me up the wall. So Did you ever witness her crawling up the wall? <laughs> so when you're trying to translate yeah. an idiom like that mm-hmm. as a translator, again, you're, you're dealing with the very words of God. Right. So there are idioms like that in the New Testament and the Old. Mm-hmm. When you come across that, do you translate it literally mm-hmm. to where... In the new language, the people are going to scratch their head and say, what in the world driving up the wall means? Right. The true story I heard one time, there was a, a pastor or preacher that was speaking in in English, mm-hmm. and he had a translator that was standing there next to him and translating it live mm-hmm. to this group. And the American speaker said, I'm tickled to death to be here. Yeah, and when he translated it, it came out, "You've scratched me till I died." Okay. And so you have to make a decision. Right. What words do you use? Do you yeah. translate it literally? You, I'm tickled to death. Right. And the receiving audience says, "That's nonsense." What, what do you mean? Right. And and so, or do you translate it into something? I'm very happy. To be here. Right. And it's not a literal one to one. So those are some of the decisions they have to make. And another area you mentioned that the translators, the purpose. So there's there's different purposes as well as far as why maybe somebody would go after another version. An example of that is, from my understanding, the the what's referred to as the net Bible. Those translators, they wanted to have a version of the Bible that was copyright free that anybody could use. We're in a digital age now, cut and paste on our computers. And so they wanted to have a version that is copyright that anybody could use in in their work or for their online purposes. And so that was something that they, one of their reasons for it, but it doesn't diminish how they went about it. They have, and usually all of these translations from these, uh, they have a committee and they have several different people, Old Testament scholars, New Testament scholars, Greek scholars, Hebrew scholars. And so they they really look at this. It's not just one person that's sitting down trying to make a translation. All of the modern English translations are done by translation committees, teams of people that all believe Orthodox Christian doctrine. Right. They don't bring in non-believers. They don't bring in heretics. They have people that believe the historic doctrines of the faith. 
that believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and they all use that. So the translations that we have today are trustworthy, and they just have some different emphasis. Lastly, I want to say, though, that there are, being that being said, there are some translations that are out there that are not good translations because they actually deny some of the original meanings and some of the original manuscripts. There's some of them that get so loose that they show some bias, but none of the ones like we mentioned, all the modern New American Standard, English Standard Version, NIV, those are all good good translations. But you do have versions that are put out by the Jehovah's Witnesses. Right. And what they do in their translation, they have their own Bible. I don't even call it a translation. It's a version. Yeah, it's a version. What they do is they insert their doctrine into their translate or their version of it. And so one of their doctrines is, is that Jesus is not God. And so as you go through and look at certain references where it's clearly got Jesus is either declaring himself as God or being equal to God, they have changed those verses in order to deny or make it seem like he is not God. So those type of versions, those are ones that are put out by the denominations themselves, and they put doctrine into their translation or version rather than just letting the text speak for itself. Correct. So next question, very different subject. What does the Bible say about cremation? Yeah. We've had people ask about that. And so talk to a little bit about that. First of all, one of the reasons why if you read through the Bible, you're not going to find creation. So the specific way this question's read is phrased is, what does the Bible say about cremation? Well, the specific answer is it doesn't. Yeah, right. I think there's some more meaning behind the question, though, which is, what do we do today mm-hmm. about creation? But the, the Bible really doesn't speak to it one way or the other. What the Bible does do is it talks about burial. Mm-hmm. I cannot think of a single person in the Bible that wasn't, when they died, if they talk about what they do with the body, it's always buried. Right. Over no, and over again. Abraham no, was buried. Everybody was buried. No funeral pyres, bodies that were put in with wood, put under the, no putting the body in the ship and lighting the ship on fire. None of that stuff is taking place in Scripture. The Scripture always buries the body. Right, correct. Now, one of the reasons is that we believe in resurrection. Yeah. 1 Corinthians 15, over and over again, talks about the body, the physical body that's put in the grave, will be raised again. Mm -hmm. Now, there's some different theologians that have different theories on exactly how that's going to happen. Some say that the soul reinforms the body and the the dust when it comes back from heaven. But nevertheless, the Bible is quite clear that there's a relationship, a one-to-one relationship between the body that dies and the, the resurrected body. It's not a different one. You don't get a new body. It's not a different one. It's, it's the one you're in now is going to be raised again. That's what the Bible teaches, and that's why Christians for 2,000 years have always buried our dead. Yeah. And so resurrection is taught many times in the Bible. I believe it's Job says, though my body decay, yet I will stand on the earth in the latter day. Correct. And so question then comes, is it a sin mm-hmm. to cremate your body? Because nowadays it's people dealing with, it's quite an expense for burials Correct. and things like that. Yeah. And so it's, it's not a sin to cremate a body. It just sends the wrong message. Cremation is done by some religions because they believe that we go back to dust and that's it. Yeah. And so that's a message that 
is contrary to Christianity. Or they come back as something else, some other right. reincarnation creature, is right? contrary to Christianity. Right. So therefore, the body's got to be destroyed in order for that to happen. And so it's not a sin to cremate a body. If God's smart enough to make it the first time, he can make it again. <laughs> and so it's not a thing to really right. get wrapped around the axle over or create division over. Right. It's just cremation tends to send the wrong message. And all of Christianity it's never been done. Yeah. Christians always bury our dead because we believe in resurrection. Yeah. Next question. Seems to be a lot of very public Christians leaving the faith these days. How do we respond to that? Yeah. Well, the question comes about, the first, first thing that comes to my mind is, were they Christians to begin with? Right, because we have different verses and different scriptures that talk about enduring to the end, having faith, and, and such as that. But also over in First John chapter two, as John is writing in verse nineteen, he says, "They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are, they all are not of us." So I think. This is one verse, and, and one reason is, is that they never real, really truly were Christians to begin with. And the Bible teaches over and over again in the New Testament that there's going to be false believers inside the church. Correct. The book of Jude talks about there's being false believers that have crept in intentionally. I believe it's Peter talks about false people coming into the church. Right. I mean, uh, several times, over and over, it talks about false believers coming into the church. So, it, it had already started to happen in the first century. And that passage you just read, Steve, yeah. they went out from us because they were not of us. Right. They had to be in the church to start with to, before they could go out from us. Correct. And so the apostles knew that there were false believers inside the church. Even Jesus talked about the parable of the sower. The sower went out to sow and he scattered seeds. Right. Some of the seeds grew, start, they sprouted until the sun got hot. Yeah. And they withered away. They sprouted until the cares of the world choked them out. Correct. And so our Lord, before he even started the church, told us that there would be people that would come up and show some signs of life, but would then kind of fall away. I would also point back to these high profile Christians, I'm using air quotes that walk away from the faith, there were probably indications prior to them doing that that were showing that they weren't really truly followers. And so it, it, it probably isn't really a surprise that they're walking away from the faith. They never really had the faith uh, to begin with. And I would dare to say that there's not one assembly of church here on this planet that is 100% all believers, maybe some small country churches somewhere when there's about maybe 20 members or something like that. But I think there's there's uh, probably false believers that are in, in every congregation. And of course, our hope and prayer is, is that those people actually do come to themselves and, and actually do become believers. Well, you know, the old the old joke is there's only two of us that are still faithful, me and you, and, and I'm a little worried about you. <laughs> And so, <laughs> fortunately yeah. or, or unfortunately, we right. don't really know people's hearts. Correct. Correct. And it's, it's only God can really know the heart. Correct. Part of what's going on here with this question is there's some very public mm -hmm. people of all ages that walk away from the faith. Right. And when that gets broadcast in the news, 
it seems like it's bigger than it is simply because, okay, yeah, there's these really public people that leave. Right. And that makes the news. But what doesn't make the news is, okay, here's this long list of people that didn't leave. Right. <laughs> and here's this list of right. people that are coming into the church. Correct. I mean, why don't they broadcast across every news channel that, oh, here's a guy that just got saved. Right. Or here's a guy that was struggling with his face and, and, and came back to the church. And those things don't get broadcast. Yeah, the world wants to broadcast the negative aspect. Now, what is a trend in our day and is a real issue is that the next generation, the younger generation, as a percentage of the church, mm-hmm. is getting smaller. Yeah. And that's been shown by multiple statistically valid studies is showing that the people inside the churches are getting older and older, and the percentages of the by age group that are becoming Christians are smaller and smaller as you get younger and younger. We're, we're losing the young people, and there's a number of reasons for that. But that's where we should focus is on, on uh, reaching the next generation. Right. The church has always had a good number of what I call fair-weather Christians. They they leave when they find it unpleasant. And as long as times are good, they uh, they tend to hang around. Right. And in times of persecution, people leave. But the ones that are left are the true believers that are really focused. And actually, the church is sometimes more powerful when there's less people in it because yeah. the, the chaff has been blown away. Yep, I agree. Next question. What happens to a Christian that's in a family that has no other believers in it? There's sometimes Christians will become a Christian, and you're the only one in your family. Yeah. And maybe a spouse, maybe a parent is not a believer, and you're a new Christian. How do you grow as a Christian in that? How do you? What do you do if there's kind of conflict? Uh, I guess the first question here is, how does somebody like that grow in the faith? Well, the first thing I want to say is, is that for a new Christian, they automatically gain literally thousands upon thousands upon thousands of new family members by them being a believer and them being a follower of Jesus Christ, they automatically become a part of that family. So I want to encourage them that they do have a new family, so to speak, of this body of believers that are out there. And so while they might be isolated on their immediate family, uh, and the situation, I would encourage them to to get to a Bible-believing church and get involved with the uh, their new family, so to speak, of other believers. One thing I think we could be clear about is that nobody's going to grow mm-hmm. as a Christian just going to church on Sunday. Yeah. If all you have is church Sunday morning— for an hour. I mean, that's 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 great. I encourage you to do that. Right. But you're not really going to grow that way. The only way to really grow and mature as a believer and, and develop spiritually is to spend some time. Right. And one way is to spend some time with other believers, mm-hmm. if at all possible. And if you're the only one in your family, it that's harder. But nowadays with modern communication and the way our churches are set up, if, if you're allowed to go to church or if you're allowed to communicate on the Internet with other believers, you can connect with other believers. And that's a, that's a key thing is try, if at all possible, unless it creates some sort of dissension in the family, Right. in which case it's not worth ruining a marriage over by going to church. I've seen that happen sometimes. Yeah. 
And uh, I'm, I'm not advocating like younger children to disobey their parents necessarily because they, they have to obey their parents. Right. But the one of the ways to grow is to connect with, with other Christians. And if you pray to the Lord and you look for ways and you treat other people in your family with love, you'll find a way to connect with other Christians. Right. Another way is just to read the Bible as much as possible. Yeah. You know, again, you're not going to get it for an hour on Sunday morning. You have to be curious about the Word. You have to really be curious. Why is it teaching this? What does it mean? Right. And so read the Bible as much or listen to it as much as possible. Listen to Christian teachings. There's many good resources out there. And somehow, some way, find other Christians to communicate with. It just makes it a lot better if you have a Christian friend. And remember, what Christianity is really about and what God wants is a relationship. And so through reading Scripture and understanding God and Jesus better and the story of salvation better and prayer, your prayer life, that builds up a relationship with God, with Jesus. And, uh, you know, that's that's the really the main crux. And so as you build that relationship up, that's truly what God wants is that personal relationship with you. And so you can get benefit of it by being around other people. But again, it's uh, the relationship building that you want to do. And one suggestion I would strongly have for churches is churches should have mentorship programs. Yeah, Churches should realize that new Christians need mentoring, they need counseling, they need uh, discipling, and should have a formal way for a new believer to be plugged in with a, a mature believer that can check on them, find out how they're doing, give them advice, place on how to grow, how to get into the Word, things like that. Correct. Yeah, I, absolutely. So that's all the time for today for our questions. And so we hope this has been helpful to you. Again, if you have questions, we're glad to deal with them as we have time. Submit them to our email, info, I-N-F-O, info at reasoningthroughthebible.com. And we hope that things like this have been valuable for you. And we'll uh, see you again on our future Q&A programs. God bless.